0: Hey, Radio Rothbard fans. The Mises Institute has a new free book for you. Dr. Guido Holzman's How Inflation Destroys Civilization. Learn how inflation isn't only making us poorer. It's harming our culture, mental well-being, and the moral foundations of civilization itself. Get your free copy today at mises.org slash
1: rothpodfree. Hey guys, this is Though Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and if you're listening to the show, you're no doubt familiar with Human Action, Ludwig von Mises' Masterpiece. This is the 75th anniversary of its publication, and in honor of that, we are holding a very special event on May 16th through the 18th, a conference dedicated to this very important book. We're going to have scholars from all around the world coming in, including Bob Murphy, Guido Holzman, Joe Salerno, Tom DeLorenzo, a whole list of all-star Austrian scholars. Now, as a Radio Rothbard listener, we've got a special opportunity for you. If you go to mises.org slash RR raffle, that's double R raffle, uh, you can enter in to get a free admission to this very special conference. Also, if you're a student, we've got scholarships available for you at the event site, uh, mises.org slash events. So I hope to see you guys there, and now enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Tho Bishop, content manager for the Mises Institute, and joined, as always, by my co-host, Ryan Macon, who has many roles here at the Institute and was a debate participant at this year's LibertyCon, which is going to be a topic of our episode today, batting a little cleanup, a little post-mortem. I think he's still (laughs) wiping the the blood from his hands after his beatdown on the the topic of uh, secession, political decentralization uh, at this year's Liberty Con, uh, which was back in D.C. this year after uh, moving around uh, in the, the COVID haze and the aftermath there. I know we had a lot of Mises fans at that event. Uh, I know in the past I've always enjoyed being at, whether it's Young Americans for Liberty or Students for Liberty, always excited to see um, students, um, particularly with Students for Liberty, get a lot of international presence there, which always great to get uh, good Misesians from overseas uh, coming up to the booth and uh, reaching out to our folks. So Ryan, how was your, your Liberty Con experience? You survived D.C.? Your, your uh, beard's only gotten a little grayer from, from the <laughs> aftermath there. So uh, how, how was Liberty Con writ large before we get to the, uh, the topic at hand?
0: It was good. I enjoyed the event. Uh, I liked the people there. Um, I'm su- I suppose the people who didn't like me just avoided me. So it's not like I didn't, you know, I didn't have any problems or anything like that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I would go back again if they invited me to do something else there and there were some good mises people there was a couple of different groups there that i really liked um there were of course mises folks there guys who had been former fellows um all guys in this case as far as i could tell <laughs> uh guys who are going to be uh, apprentices in your upcoming program though at least two or three of those people um and uh Uh, Stefan Lavera was there, who I'd not met in person before, and he's promoted us a lot on his podcast. And Peter St. Ange was there. Friend of the show. Yep, an economist at uh, Heritage, but a former fellow and just a good Misesian guy and so yeah i had a chance to talk to to a bunch of those folks i don't party much anymore so i generally was in bed at the normal time (laughs) but i did have a chance at the event just to speak to some folks um so that was good and it was exciting then another group that i noticed was uh the students for liberty people um from argentina man were they excited they were so wired I mean even just normies that i know from argentina like at my parish and stuff like that there's a couple of them who are just totally very excited right because they're just so sick of their country being destroyed that they're really excited about malay right And, and of course i'm always being the way i am i'm like boy i just hope this whole thing doesn't end disastrously somehow uh but of course i only i want malay to have total success in terms of reforming the internal economy there and yeah it was great to see the argentinian guys but you're right just the the international presence in general just the guys from africa lots of different groups from latin america and uh so i you know a lot of it's run of the mill work in terms of just opposing whatever stupid horrible idea the local regime has in all of these countries and that's that sort of work needs to be done um, I don't think theoretically there's a lot. We have a lot that we do with Students for Liberty, but it, uh, uh, in terms of foiling the the more horrible plans of uh, some local politicians, it, it seems that uh, they do some good work there. Absolutely,
1: I, I know within kind of American libertarian circles, you know, there's, there was a, a longstanding sort of view that sort of uh, SFL folks were more um, you know, left libertarian, maybe maybe more anti mesis Young Americans for Liberty were kind of the more Ron Paul mold and the like, but um, it's worth noting that the the head of uh, Students for Liberty, Wolf von Leer, Doctor Wolf von Lehrer was actually a former fellow of ours, and I know that we there's uh, there's plenty of fans within the the organization itself, and um, again, so it's we've always good to have friends out there, always good to have people uh, you know promoting good good Mises and Rothbard and all libertarian organizations, and allowing for a stage to allow for some. Uh, I think, particularly when there are some some differences, whether it's in strategy, whether it is, uh, I know they've hosted debates about you know, the Chicago School versus the Austrian School. I think David Friedman debated Bob Murphy uh, a few times at some of these events, and you had a debate that uh, was actually originally supposed to take place um, last year at one of these Soho forums with our friend uh, Gene Epstein uh, on the topic of national divorce. I think was is the the go to title there, and as you explained in your your opening, you don't particularly like that term, um, <laughs> but it kind of goes to this broader conversation about the value of, particularly within the American perspective, um, you know, the value of talking about secession, um, and you know whether that is state secession. Obviously, we're seeing a little bit more uh, energy out there with uh, the Texas versus DC stuff, as we addressed the I think last week's episode. We've seen this actually kind of be a lot more normalized in the last several years. I mean, you've even have Republican members of Congress that've talked about it. It seems something that has become beyond simply you know used to be us only kind of out there talking about it. Now it is at least a conversation that's being had in social media spaces. And um, you know there are some libertarians out there that are opposed to the idea of secession. They argue, oh well. Well, more states doesn't necessarily mean more liberty and the like. So, you know, just for our audience that have not listened to the debate, which you can find on our Mises Media YouTube channel and all of its great glory there, um, though it it misses my favorite point, which is uh, when when one of the first people introducing you called you Ryan the Kraken, which uh, always, always glad to see see that out there. Um, (laughs) But what, what, what were your sort of opening points? To be made on the topic of session. again, obviously a topic that we've discussed a great deal. But what what did what did you find the most compelling? You know, when you have you know a five minute opening introduction um, to try to convince people that are otherwise sympathetic to a lot of these same ends, but may have some um, some some suspicions about this
0: project. Well, something that cannot be ignored is just simply the fact that um, the right of self determination is something that exists. It's something we have as human beings and it's uh it's something that needs to be respected and so by simply saying that hey if if a majority of people somewhere uh in some corner of the country decide they don't want to be taxed and ruled over anymore by the central government they should be able to leave this is a fundamental right that is recognized even by the hacks at the united nations uh it goes the, the idea of the right goes back to the declaration of independence and it's and by respecting this right you're simply doing the right thing so we're talking about fundamental human rights here uh, and mises talks about this although mises's view of human rights was a little bit distinct uh, he was a bit more utilitarian about that um, but he says hey look people have an individual right to self-determination and he even takes um what uh, alan buchanan who's uh, a notable and pro- perhaps one of the most uh, well-known and established scholars on secession Writes is that Mises uh, takes this radical view of pure the pure plebiscite theory of secession, which is basically that if you just you got any district or group of people where the majority says hey we want to break off that they should be able to do so. Uh, uh, Mises was actually very radical on this, but in a a recent article for mises.org which i wrote just in to clarify my thinking for the debate um and which you can certainly see on there in my archive now just from last week uh this idea of self-determination um yep it starts with the declaration of independence this is recognized you can see this all over the scholarship you look up right of self-determination and what does it talk about talks about the american revolution it talks about Locke to some extent but that its application in real life dates to the american revolution and then later groups copied it significantly and i note that in the article the hungarians the poles um any of these secessionist groups and later of course right uh, decolonization is all about the right to self-determination the kenyans um the spaniards or the uh the uh, south americans used it to break away from spain the issue just comes up again and again. And it's an issue of secession. And occasionally you'll hear these crackpots attempt to claim that the American Revolution was not about secession. And you'll see this sometimes. I I, I think I quote in a recent article I did on Jefferson about this this historian. I, I don't know how somebody gave this guy a PhD, saying that, uh, oh, it's, it's not the Declaration of Secession, it's the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the secession has nothing to do with the Declaration of Independence. Well, uh, Nobody thinks that except a tiny little group of of people who are committed emotionally to opposing secession. And I quote um, Harvard historian uh, David Armitage, not exactly a Rothbardian, but as mainstream as mainstream can get, uh, who says, look, uh, <laughs> Jefferson uh, wrote in his Declaration of Independence that people have a right to break off and form their own government. This is, Armitage says, a right to secession. That's it. And he notes that this actually technically predates even the American Revolution. You could note uh, that the the Dutch Republic, which broke off from the Habsburgs, uh, was a case of secession as well uh, in the 17th century. And uh, and of course, anyone who claims that wasn't secession is clearly in la-la land, too. So we can see this right that's well-established and uh, has been used over and over again uh, in the 20th century decolonization and then after the uh, end of the soviet union was used in the baltics and then in ukraine to declare independence and this these were even in the case of um the the baltics and and, uh, and ukraine they were offered voting and representation within a new Soviet Union under what was called the New Union Treaty. They were offered an opportunity to continue in this new republic that would uh, be the successor state to the Soviet Union. And they refused and said, forget about it, we're gonna have our own country. But according to all these libertarians out there who are telling me that secession's bad because America's a republic and they have representatives in Congress, so you're not allowed to leave, that it was wrong for Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania and Ukraine to leave the Soviet Union because hey they were offered a republican uh relationship there they were offered to be in a republican state with the Russians and have a constitution and be considered a sovereign state much in the way that American states are considered sovereign but they say no 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 you can't do that if you're in a republic but we can see right there just how inconsistent they are because few of them would tell you today that Ukraine doesn't have a right to independence uh, because it 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 insisted on pulling out of what would have been a constitutional republic. Uh, so, uh, just the whole thing is really uh, half-assed, I would say, on the part of a lot of this, uh, a lot of these claims about secession. They claim that, oh, it's not a right people have. They claim that, oh, because there's a constitution, you can't do it. In fact, Mises addresses that specifically. He says in liberalism, even if. The Russian Empire, he's writing in 1927, actually that was the new Soviet Union by that point, even if the Soviet Union converted over to a constitutional republic, these minority groups that wanna leave the Soviet Union, they should be free to do so. The fact that you have some specific type of government is irrelevant to whether a group should be free to hold a plebiscite and leave. Um, so if you can try and convince me, I suppose that Mises isn't a liberal, that Mises didn't understand these issues, that Mises was naive, which of course is a joke, um, But Mises understood the right to self-determination, he understood the realities of self-defense and international relations, and he took clearly the point that secession is a human right, uh, or at least it's an individual right, as he phrased it, and that people should be able to do it under any circumstances, whether you're in a republic, whether you're in a dictatorship, whatever, and really just for any reason. So that's really the fundamental starting point that I come from. Uh, with uh, these debates on here. And uh, I leave it up to these people to try and convince me that we should deny those rights and that uh, these groups should be forced to continue in your country, whether they want to be in it or not. And before we touch on some of the kind of specific um,
1: complaints or or specific concerns that uh, your opponent, who is uh, Jonathan Casey, who is the chairman of the classical liberal caucus within the LP, um, which itself is kind of a reaction to the Mises Caucus, which has no relation to the, the von Mises Institute as a whole. Also, it's a fun libertarian drama for, for anyone that's been following that on social media the last several years. Um, uh, but you know, one of the points that I, I think is interesting, because this is something that is, goes beyond sort of the confines of this debate, but is this, this, it is this interesting contradiction where a lot of the arguments against secession from a libertarian perspective attempt to ground themselves within this sort of universalistic argument, right? That, that everyone deserves Liberty. Um, and therefore that, you know, I don't want New Hampshire to, to break away. We need to be focusing on making the United States just as a you know, local example, uh, a, a more liberal uh, entity writ large. And we'll go into some of the specifics on, I think some of the, the really weird arguments that were used in this debate, but, you know, it goes it flies completely in against the idea that okay well the that, that individual right of self-determination is something they don't recognize and this is a big point that you make in your book uh, breaking away um it starts off with your introduction universal rights locally enforced um then for any radio rothbard listeners that have not yet gotten their copy of breaking away the case for secession radical decentralization and smaller polities you can get it with a discount at the Mises store using the coupon code I think that saves you 10, 10%, which puts the, the cost of the book underneath $10. That's the deal of the day right there. Um, but it seems like that, that inherent contradiction, right, where, okay, well, if, if secession is a political determination, if if your right for the a, a political representation of your choosing is a human right, is, is a universal right, is a natural right, they want to throw that out the window in the name of universal rights, um, uh, to impose it so that of this 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 universal sphere as a political project. And that, that's, that contradiction is something that you know kind of pops up right away on the difficulties of trying to appeal to some sort of, of principled libertarian position. rather, than, you know, I, we, we can we can suggest other motives for for why particularly DC libertarian organizations are less keen on this discussion than others um, but that right there seems like an inherent contradiction going into this debate
0: yeah basically the position is uh, when you're in any sort of a political union the people at the center the people in uh what we will call the metropole which is the 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 term that describes the um the ruling city the ruling group within a, a larger empire or uh, political entity that the people in the Metropole know better. So here's an example. So a, a state, each state in the United States has legislative branch, executive branch, uh, judicial branch. It has a bill of rights. Almost every state constitution that I've seen. Um, in fact, every one that I've actually looked at has one, but I'm not prepared to say that every single state constitution has a bill of rights. Maybe there's one or two that don't have one. Um, but every, uh, every state has a Bill of Rights. In many cases, they're much much better. I was looking yesterday at the Indiana uh, Bill of Rights from the State Constitution. It is actually much more detailed and better than the U.S. Bill of Rights. Uh, it's On gun rights, it's better. On freedom of speech, it's better. Blatantly clear that uh, the government there cannot give any money directly to a religious organization or promote any sort of um, religious establishment, all sorts of great stuff in their Bill of Rights. But what these anti-secession people would have you believe is that, well, yeah, sure, every state has a Bill of Rights, every state has its own Supreme Court and legislature and democratic uh, institutions, but you can't trust them. The only people you can trust to enforce liberty are the people on the US Supreme Court are the people in the US Congress and what is the justification for saying this it's i i have no idea like what the theoretical claim is here that the more centralized government the better that because they're bigger and richer and have more power that they for therefore they protect rights better it's a it's a bizarre position but what their position is saying is that republican government democratic government doesn't work at any level lower than the u.s federal government um which is just a a terrible position illogical it's never been explained to me why that's true um and that's the boy are they obsessed with that idea and that's essentially their position now at the debate i asked okay well if the higher you go the more rights are better respected, then why stop at the US government, right? There's a recognition uh, implicit in all of these claims, unless they're out there advocating for world government, they're recognizing that the, the it's perfectly normal and natural for the world to be decentralized, right? There's about 200 different countries in the world. They don't get up there and say, well, Canada can't be trusted to do its own thing, so it should be annexed and merged with the United States. Mexico can't be trusted to do its own thing, so it should be merged and annexed by the United States. Why? Why can Mexico uh, be allowed self-government, but uh, California cannot, Oregon cannot, Colorado cannot, Texas cannot, but not Mexico? Or but Mexico gets their own government? Canada gets their own government. Uh, why shouldn't Why shouldn't they be ruled over by the Supreme Court? Um, again, no explanation there. Um, And so I say, why not then have all rights protected by the United Nations, right? All U.S. law should be subjected to review by the United Nations Human Rights Council. What's their argument against that then? What are they going to claim? Is that, oh, well, Americans have a right to self-government. Oh, so Americans get self-determination in some vague way, but Once you go down a level, you get down to a group of 20 million people instead of 330 million people. Those people, the smaller group doesn't get rights. So explain to me why the U.N. shouldn't be in charge of human rights. Why would not a global Supreme Court do a better job of protecting rights in the U.S. Supreme Court? Since as these anti-secession people tell us, you can't trust the Texas Supreme Court. They're a bunch of hicks and rubes, and they they would do everything wrong. And what I note also, of course, is that this fundamentally is colonialist thinking. I mean, these people are saying, if you change some of the locations, the words, you're you're saying exactly what all of those British colonialists were saying a hundred years ago. Well, you, you can't let those Botswanans run their own country. They're barbarians. They wouldn't know how to protect human rights. And I mean, it's is the exact same thing. So uh, how I, I have yet to to understand what is this uh, true s- philosophical standard that explains to me why a republic the size of Texas can't have self government, but uh, something that's about ten times larger is is much better at it. And one of the things I think is interesting is you know the, the I think the most common
1: um, pushback, the most common argument. Um, that was waged your way during your debate was, oh, well, you know, Ryan's great at talking about this stuff in the abstract, even though a lot of your content was actually based off of empirical studies about uh, the, the value of small states and how the incentives of smaller states lends themselves to more politically liberal, um, the Misesian sense um, views on whether it's uh, a trade or or taxes or um, various policies and the like, like oh well, you know, you don't have a plan, and I don't want to get rid of our constitutional Fourth Amendment rights um, in the pursuit of of some secessionist, you know, right wing fever swamp, you know, sort of uh, uh, take tear down of this beloved Constitution, uh, because then I have no safeguard to our liberty. And you know, to me, like that that argument was was very bizarre from from multiple reasons. One is that it suggests that constitutional protections are holding up for, for any particular any particular strength, right? I mean, the, the idea that uh, the Constitution is safely guarding Fourth Amendment rights, um, you know, particularly in today's age of sniper uh, snooping and everything that we know in terms of the, the government's um, collection of, of data and surveillance, the um, ways that they are able to coerce various uh, private institutions to essentially be private arms of state enforcement, um, you know, whether it's you know, having their bank squeal on your behaviors there or your cell phone provider or your internet provider and the like, um, you're know, making them proxies into a, a larger and larger, more powerful um, corporate estate. Um, in that regard, you know, th- this romantic ideal that ultimately is required to argue against secession, particularly in the American perspective, um, seems to me to Require almost as this this side defense of the regime as it stands now, and then the solution to it. Their idea is, oh well, all we need to do is—I I think this is a direct quote—we we just need to pass more laws to make America more libertarian. And then the question then is, okay, what is your plan to do that? Right? I mean, you, you look at Washington D.C. in particular. I mean, Washington D.C. is perhaps the um, you know the most broken political system in the country, and, and Maybe that's, uh, you know, there's, there's perhaps some silver some linings there where, you know, Congress is not as, you know, they've only passed, you know, there's the least productive Congress in modern history, um, which given the makeup of the current Congress is probably a better than a more active Congress. Um, but, you know, the idea that, oh, well, you know, all we have to do is hold a few more libertarian events so we can pass some laws at the federal level that will um, take the concerns that... You and I might have people skeptical of DC might have and simply codify them into this large national American perspective. Um, that that to me seems far more idealistic than the idea that a state like Texas, which has a bill of rights, right? You know, most most states have um, you know a, a much larger state of uh, uh, bill of rights than the uh, Constitution does. I mean, I've got uh, Texas's bill of rights pulled up right here. There's 32 sections within it, dealing with a variety of things. I mean, I'm not going to try to suggest that the state of Texas is perfect at protecting the rights <laughs> listed here, by any means, right? It's still sure. a state. Um, but, yeah. You know, but this entire dynamic that, you know, that, that seems to be, uh, that that was, that was one of the most consistent um, sort of pushbacks here. And, and for me, as, as a, as a objective observer, of course, uh, from the sidelines, um, one that seemed uh, completely wanting.
0: It's they 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 go off on this thing about how, oh, you you don't have a plan for implementing your secession. Um, so, so maintain the status quo. That is essentially what they're saying. I, I can't find a difference between these people and just a standard conservative who likes the status quo, wants to protect the status quo, thinks you shouldn't do anything too weird, too radical because that'll just automatically be bad. Um, you know. Make- Makes me think of some of these, uh, like these old, old school, like um, anti abolitionist types from like the 19th century, their argument was literally, oh, these people are reprehensible because they want to overturn the established order. Oh, no, God forbid anyone overturn the established order. Uh, But that's, you know, Jesus loved the established order. Moses loved the established order. That was a point Will Grigg would often make is what a joke it was when people argued that the established order was always good. He's like, well, if these people pretend to be Christians, then they should probably shut up about how great the established order is. Um, But uh, since uh, their God is apparently historically not a big fan of the established order. Uh, but that's essentially what the uh, the argument they make is. So it's a conservative argument, and yeah, don't mess up. Don't mess up my my precious Bill of Rights. Um, let's let's do my plan. What's your plan? Uh, we'll appoint even better guys to. The Supreme Court, and we'll vote harder and uh, elect more of our guys. Oh, okay. And and if you don't, then what motivation does the government have to actually protect your rights? This was this is something they miss every time. Is and is an important point that Gustav de Molinari uh, made uh, was that look what incentive and if you don't know Molinari, look him up. One of the great radical liberals uh, of the 19th century and a huge figure in classical liberalism. Uh, he said, what incentive does a government have um, to protect your rights if, if no matter what you do, you can't leave? Uh, and he said, absolutely. Every region, every municipality has a right to self-determination and a right to leave. And it should, by the way, be this right of double secession. That is, it's not just the regions, our recognized departments or whatever here in France that, that get to leave. It's the cities within there that we, we can do secession right down to the local level just like mises by the way at the ultra local level um supported because only then only at the the threat of losing this wealth losing this population does the state have any motivation um, to actually protect your rights because otherwise ultimately experience shows that they they see that oh well we're just uh, the majority's in charge you're a minority group within the majority tough luck we're going to do what we want you can't leave you're not allowed to leave um, let's move on. Oh, and we promise we'll protect your rights in the future though. We'll figure out some plan for that. And that's the thing. They've just, they don't have a plan. They don't have a strategy, uh, other than doing what's been done for the last hundred years. And to then expect some sort of plan from the secessionists when in reality, all the great secession of movements that have been very successful, there's no plan. There was no plan when the Baltics broke off from the Soviet union and who have since, um, their GDP per capita has just absolutely uh, outpaced the Soviet GDP per capita. They've left the Soviet Union in the dust. They didn't have a plan. In fact, they, they absolutely refused to go along with the the uh, the proposed plan from the Soviets. The United States didn't have a plan. They broke off. They fought a war. The Dutch, they didn't have a plan. They just wanted to get away from the Habsburg. So, This idea that, oh yeah, well we need to get the permission and we need to have some sort of orderly thing. Um, Hey, if you're opposed to that turning into a bloodbath, then don't support the war to prevent secession. Um, And I I didn't ask this during the debate, but it would have been fun to ask was, uh, how many people in the audience are willing to take a bullet or to shoot somebody else to prevent, say, Texas or anybody from seceding? If A, you're willing to send other people to die to prevent secession, or you're willing to shoot somebody uh, to prevent secession, or you're willing to have your head blown off to prevent secession, you're a deeply disordered person, and I hope you're never in charge of anything. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of old geezers in Washington, I'm sure, would love to send young men to fight and die to prevent secession. Um, But if you're against that sort of bloodshed, then don't support wars against secession, and uh, the world will be a much more peaceful place. Well, I think it's also, there's a, a wonderful irony with the, the people that are, you know,
1: want you to have a very specific plan for this gradual political decentralization. Uh, typically, mm-hmm. the same ones that like to call themselves Hayekians, um, which to be fair, I think is a discredit to Hayek. Hayek is much better than most of the, the most people that describe themselves as Hayekians. Um, usually it's kind of a way of, of distancing themselves from uh, you know, Rothbard or, or, or Sessians and things like that. Um, but, but of course, you know, kind of the one of their favorite lines is the beauty of spontaneous order. And yet when it comes to political arrangements, this is precisely what they fear the most is, is the spontaneous order that could allow from a respect and an appreciation and a defense of um, you know, changing of borders, of political decentralization, of secession, of the dynamics which you know, Ralph Rako um, identified, as you referenced in your debate, um, you know, what, what made Europe freer and more prosperous and the like. You know, it's very, um, again, this is not a, a pie in the sky, um, you know, pontificating from a, a very nice armchair, thinking about what could have happened. Um, but, you know, I think that your work on this topic in particular, um, you, you root it so well in terms of the empirical realities that history has presented, um, as you've discussed already in this episode. But you know, that, that whole pushback, you know, that, that, that concern about what spontaneous order will look like with a, a changing political border landscape. Um, you know, just one of the, the interesting, again, one of these other contradictions out there um, that are, are pretty unique only when libertarians debate this issue, right? We don't have to worry about these sort of hypocrisies when Joe Biden's out there, you know, threatening to nuke, uh, you know, secessionists and the like, right? You know, that that makes, that's perfectly, uh, 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 makes perfect sense within the worldview that they have, um, but is a, a unique uh, little quirk with, when libertarians – Come out with yeah, it.
0: Let's talk about the empirical data there for a sec. Cause I, yeah, I haven't really gone into any of the details here. The, the anti-secession people, they're always purely speculative. Oh, well I have, in my opinion, if uh, Texas breaks off, it's going to erect all sorts of trade barriers and slam shut its borders. And, uh, we all know that the only reason any country would want independence is to erect controls on trade and migration. Actually, the empirical evidence shows the exact opposite. Uh, and there's tons of studies, uh, especially after the end of the Cold War, where there was a flowering of scholarship and interest in secession during the 1990s and 2000s. Now, some empirical studies show that it doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, many empirical studies, however, show that smaller countries, countries that have broken off from a larger entity which, by the way, those countries like Ukraine, the Baltics that broke off from the Soviets, they were offered in this new Republican constitution free trade, a guarantee of free trade with all other parts of the Union. They said, no thanks. Why? Was that so they could erect more barriers against trade? Nope, because what the data shows is that all of these countries that broke off, all these countries that broke free from the Warsaw Pact, countries like that decolonized, they're very interested in trade. They're very interested in attracting... Uh, good migrants. They're very interested in attracting um, purchases for their goods and purchasing foreign goods. Why? Because they have to. They can't just, they can't uh, uh, even pretend to be autarkic, where they're, oh, well, we'll be self sufficient. We'll make everything ourselves. Some Latin American countries tried that in the 70s and 60s uh, with uh, when they were in the thrall of dependency theory, which was this dumb theory that if you make everything yourself, um, in your home country that you'll be better off. Well, all that does is make you poorer. So none of these countries try that. And as has been pointed out, in fact, the smaller countries, the countries that are post-secessionist states, they tend to be, quote unquote, more conservative. And what they mean by that is lower tax. Um, and so that's that's clear. In fact, when we see the countries that oppose the the idea of a Global minimum tax, which is a movement of larger countries. Large countries always want a global minimum tax, so that they um, can then push other countries around and tell them what their minimum tax should be. Why do they all? Why do big countries want a minimum tax? So big countries can have high taxes and not have to worry about small countries with lower taxes attracting more capital, attracting the best workers, um, and attracting more trade because they've got goods produced at a lower cost. And Ireland and, and uh, Hungary are two specific examples where they've been for years opposing this idea of a global minimum tax. And the EU keeps coming back and threatening them and throwing fits and saying, hey, you people, you don't appreciate how good high taxes are. And, uh, you should support our high tax regime. But little countries, they, they, they know that low taxation is a way to compete. Lots of scholarship also on how this works in the Caribbean. All of those tiny little microstates throughout the Caribbean, gee, how many of them have, uh, have thrown up barriers to taxes and to the movement of capital? They do exactly the opposite. They're highly dependent on free trade. They all want free movement of people uh, within their countries, they want to attract people, uh, they want to attract capital, and they want to trade with everybody else. Uh, and it's the same way with a lot of these former colonies in Africa. Like Kenya, like Botswana, like Nigeria, they all heavily dependent on free trade, and they are pro free trade. It's the big old Western countries that are always trying to negotiate very managed trade, um, which they call free trade, which result has uh, you know ten thousand pages of rules about how to trade. Um, it's usually the the post-colonial countries that want more free trade. So. The empirical evidence just isn't even there. They're just making stuff up, the anti-secession people, when they say, oh, yeah, when countries uh, become smaller and break off, they want less trade. They want more tariffs. Not true. Demonstrably not true. Uh, and so present me the evidence then that, that shows me that they don't have any. They don't even read the the data. They don't even read the studies. They, they read like little op-eds that they write on their own websites, and that's their whole idea. That's their whole concept of the world of secession and scholarship. Uh, they, they couldn't name for you a single author who's, who's written on the topic in the larger world. And so of course they have, they have very little to offer in terms of any original contributions.
1: When they also revert to that sort of conservative mindset we discussed earlier when they talk about how oh, well America's like the, the this beautiful free trade, free migration zone. And you know, if we have Texas a seed, then all of a sudden you are show your passport and the border and you might have tariffs going from California to Texas and the like. Um, these similar arguments were used uh, against Brexit by um, certain types of, of European libertarians. And you know, I think the Adam Smith Institute um, you know, very boldly um, you know, rebranded itself as, as, a, as a neoliberal think tank um, in response to the libertarian backlash um, to pro-EU arguments Like, But of course, that, ex- that assumes that what we have right now is some sort of glorious free economic zone within the United States, where, of course, the taxes and the regulations and all of the additional costs going in there. It's like, fine, you don't have a tariff between Texas and California, but you know, particularly on the regulatory side of things, California's ability to set um, emission standards and the like um, that end up being nationalized end up imposing a lot more on goods than you might have with a simple tariff. Um, and again, it's this nationalization of regulation and all of the costs that go into. What we have right now um if, if if you on the on the border issue right you know the the way that immigration problems um you know create strains elsewhere right i mean that's that's another kind of one of the problems of this nationalized um perspective on borders i mean you, you've written um uh, on that topic as well and on some of the issues even there um you know these you know, again all, all this stuff is just accepted as part of the status quo that oh it's better than what i can imagine in a world that essentially takes what we have right now and just adds on to it, ignoring the fact that, you know, again, historically, it's the checks on that overriding authority that do the most to rein in these impulses. And again, so it's once once again, you you have the defenders kind of appealing to this ver- very romantic idea of what super states are in the present to diminish any pushback, any meaningful resistance to these super states um, in, in any sort of practical political sense.
0: And we should note also that the idea that any country that – any state that were to declare independence or any portion of a state um, would immediately start demanding passport checks uh, is easily disproven by the existence of the Schengen area in Europe where you don't even have to be a member of the EU and it's a borderless zone. So. In case you don't know, the Schengen area is that area of Western Europe where there are essentially not borders between these countries in in terms of migration. And, hey, Switzerland's a member of it. Norway's a, a member of it. Neither of those countries are even in the EU. They've chosen to have open borders with these neighboring states. Oh, and yet they're independent countries. Gee, according to the theory of the anti American anti secession crowd, that's impossible. That would never happen. So yet again, easy to show a historical and real world example and modern current example of just how wrong they are. So yeah, prove to me, gee, why does why does Switzerland have an open border with the rest of Europe? Why does Norway? They're not forced to by membership in the EU because they're not members. Um, So, you know, they have no answer. Um, They're just, the fact of the matter is, is they, uh, a lot of them are just driven by hate. They they don't like that there's people in some parts of the country that seem different from them culturally and they don't want those people to do anything on their own. They want those people to be ruled from Washington where the anti-secession people agree more with the ruling class there and they disagree with the local ruling class in some of these local regions and so they want to make sure that their preferred ruling class runs the show and that's essentially what it comes down to for a lot of these people well mean i think a good illustration
1: on this and i think this is a good way of, of ending it is that and again i'm not trying to be um to act in bad faith here um, you know i'm not suggesting these are bad people and the like but i, I think that there is a, a big difference in the way that certain types of, of libertarian spheres look and think about these sort of things, and I think a good illustration of this also happened at LibertyCon, and Ryan, I'm not sure if you saw this clip or not, um, but David Boaz, um, who's vice president of Cato, um, and you know, I, I think is a, a, um, one of the libertarian scholars that is very well respected in the sort of crowds that your opponent um, uh, comes from. I um, mean, you know, he gave this this talk about um, the uh, the, a, a, the need for a modern defense of liberalism, which both of us would agree with. And, you know, f- it kind of just depends on your definition of liberalism there. Um, and, you know, it's very clear when he talks about the issues that he thinks are, are worth taking a firm stand on. One is that it often, um, whether or not he would ground it in this way, often, you um, you know, there is a lot of celebration in terms of the positive rights that have come from the American regime over the last, I mean, you can go back decades, um, you know, whether, you know, a, a positive right to to gay marriage, for an example, um, which has then had larger consequences in terms of freedom of association. Um, you know, Boaz talked about uh, government Racial discrimination, but of course that's just kind of a rhetorical game. David Boaz has also said that the civil rights movement writ large in the '60s was a great libertarian achievement, which of course was not restricted simply to government impose racism, but all sorts of uh, infringements on the right of free association on various grounds um, in the private sector as well. So again, I, I appreciate the, the the thought put into it, but you know, based on this record here, that's we can very clearly see what he says. And so he will say anyone who takes this right of association, which ultimately is you know, what we are talking about when we're talking about political decentralization, that those that care more about that right to association than these positive rights um, of, of you know, forcing individuals to treat everyone as equally using the state's. Um, which you know has, has created, you know, I, I just saw today a pop up that the, you know, our, our friend the, the Colorado Baker uh, lost another Supreme Court case dealing with a yeah, trans cake now because that's, that's the new, new version of that topic, right? That there is a, there is a sense to which um, a certain type of libertarian more or less agrees with the cultural with, the, with a lot of the direction that the modern state is taking. Rather, but, but they just don't like, you know, they'll, they'll disagree with the taxes. They, they, you know, they want to eliminate, you know, licenses for, you know, hair braiders and the like, right? You know, there, there are, are micro issues in which they think that the state is imposing additional costs and whatever, but more or less they are, uh, optimistic. They, they think that America 2023 is better than it was in you know 1993 or, you know, 1963, um, be, you know, it, it, and they are willing to take the additional levels of statism for their desired cultural ends, whereas you know I see America today as you know becoming, you know I, I think from from a variety of levels and and it coming top down right the way that the government has imposed itself has weaponized cultural forces through state policy has had impacts that have you know infected private businesses and civil associations restricted all these sort of natural organizations that allow for proper um, for, for better social cooperation for a lot of the same ends that we might talk about in, in unison. but there is a willingness to go along with or to accept a lot of the status aspects of it because they're more or less po- happy with the trends that society is going i think this is kind of one of the big differences there um that ends up reflecting you know not just simply some of the 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 sparring going on um of course i mean it's worth pointing out i mean you know cato talks about the the right of minorities and yet you know they had vaccine mandates you know for their employers at their their headquarters and like you know let readers uh, listeners deal with that as they would like um but you know there is this assumption there's this kind of built-in assumption that the experts might be bad on economics, but are morally superior to the people that want secession, um, you know, in Texas and the Texas nationalists and people like us. Right. And I think that is, um, you know, they might try to justify themselves with romantic sort of, you know, wrapping themselves as romantic label of liberalism, um, but that is a very different version of liberalism than Mises would prescribe to, or many of the classical liberals that, again, a lot of your work is grounded upon. I mean, again, this is worth talking about when you've got a classical liberal caucus, if you actually read the you know, classical liberals of the past, um, you know, many of them would have no problem with, you know, they they they, they firmly recognize the importance of you know, Christian morality um, for allowing for individual human thriving alike, that, you know, those are some of the, I think the core differences that end up animating a lot of these different uh viewpoints whether it's on strategy or some other things out there
0: yes uh, well of they they support that position because fundamentally they're imperialists at heart they they're not they don't believe that the ideas of freedom should be spread through uh persuading people by explaining to people why freedom is better um and changing society in an organic way that way what they believe in is imposing by force uh their preferred laws and way of society to every corner of really the globe um because you can see that and how they they fired ted carpenter for opposing uh the u.s's proxy war in um in ukraine And the people at Cato, right, they're fundamentally even, they will even embrace outright American imperialism throughout the world, right? Teach those Afghanis the right way about how to treat women. Teach those Iraqis civilization. And so, of course, their their impulse is the same in North America. Teach those people who don't think like us how to think properly. It all comes down to bake the cake, right? bake that cake or go to jail. That's uh, it's uh, They love the coercion. They love the coercive aspect of it. These people don't think right, jail them, destroy them, ruin their business. Um, and thank goodness we have the central government to impose these enlightened ways on everybody else. But, of course, that's not the way Jefferson thought things should happen. Uh, and, in fact, Jefferson specifically, in a letter in 1816, said, uh that and by the way this is 40 years after the declaration of independence he's still supporting secession he always supported it he says look there are people in other if there are if it comes to a situation where people in other states uh, are are not like me and they, they promote warmongering they promote mercantilism uh, i would be in favor of them seceding off or us seceding off and rearranging the union in such a way that we created a new union with people who we agree with and, and think alike. And of course, Jefferson thought we should spread the the ideas of liberty through voluntary means. Um, and he saw that if we have to secede in self-defense against these warmongers or these people who support coercion, then we should do it. He was the true opposite of a colonialist, but these people who are, they oppose secession because they see good ways of impose, imposing their way of life. Um, they're <laughs> I mean, they're fundamentally imperialistic in their thinking. And so what can you do with that? I, I mean, you just have to keep opposing them and you have to deny them um, their their coercive ways because that's a fundamentally what they want and, and of course they all just assume that uh, everybody agrees with them also I mean that they're all pro-abortion for example and they think that if you are not that you should be conquered by the central state and forced to be pro-abortion in policy so that's the way they see the world um, and their method of imposing uh, that is via the Supreme Court and ultimately via the U.S. military. You send in federal agents to make sure that people are living in a way that is approved by your central government. And at the end of the day, that is what they support. And so you can't do much with them. You can't convince these people that the country should be broken up into smaller pieces because they like the status quo. They like the fact that there is an extremely powerful central government that imposes its own way. And fundamentally, they're state builders. I mean, when we it needs to be looked at in this aspect as well. No government has ever said, oh, thank goodness, we lost 10% of our territory. Now we can really do bad stuff. No, a a fundamental aspect of state building that is building more powerful states over the last 500 years, what these people, these anti-secessionist Cato types claim to be against is the idea of further centralizing power, imposing the central government's uh, official morality and way of life on all of the surrounding territories and proceeding from there. That has been the state-building exercise for centuries, and these people absolutely contribute to that. They think it's fine, and they wanna keep it going. They just think that they're building a state that uh, is is, is spreading only good values. Um, But in the end, if they end up supporting, of course, forcible reunification, if a portion of the country does break off, and they don't think uh, that the separatists should be allowed to do that, well, then, then of course, the blood will be on their hands if there's a bloodbath in an effort to prevent any sort of secession well we should blame these people then because fundamentally they've been sowing the seeds uh for preventing any sort of self-determination now for decades well, along with sending american
1: troops to deal with the deplorables out there uh whether it's in texas or afghanistan also have no problem sending the place in for uh people that were upset with the 2020 election you don't see a lot of think pieces about uh thought pieces about the need for criminal reform dealing with January 6th defendants or anything like that, um, you know, from many of these circles. But I think that is a good point to leave it on. Again, always fun for having, a you know, got to have a little, continue the libertarian drama just a little bit after an event like Liberty Con. Um, again, thank you for all of the listeners that uh, are part of Students for Liberty that were at the event. Um, and if there are any listeners, out there that are going to be at our event next week in tampa i will be down there along with our great lineup including uh our, our new president thomas de lorenzo and uh, patrick newman and joe salerno it's going to be a great event on inflation causes consequences and the cure um, if you haven't gotten your ticket yet you can use our promo code at the start of the show for a discount on your registration there if you're going to be at the event please send me an email i always love meeting fans of Radio Rothbard when we are out and about, and a reminder that we've got a very special human action conference coming up in May. If you are a student in particular, we've got some great student scholarships available. It's going to be an all-star lineup, people from all around the world in there, and of course, what better reason to get together than to discuss not only Mises' Mises's great book, but the 75th anniversary of Mises's great book. So that would be a great event. Again, thank you everyone for listening for Ryan McNakin. This is Theo Bishop, you've been listening to Radio Rothbard. We'll see you next week.